Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so thrilled to be joined today by Claire Dieterer, who has written a book that I can't stop talking about. So you're all going to hear about it from me now. Claire is the author of Love and Trouble and the New York Times bestselling memoir, Poser, My Life in 23 Yoga Poses. A book critic, essayist, and reporter, Dieter is a longtime contributor to the New York Times and has also written for The Atlantic, Vogue, Slate, The Nation, and New York Magazine. She lives near Seattle with her family, and her latest book is called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. Welcome, Claire. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for writing this book. I, I thought maybe we could start with broad kind of changes that I have noticed in myself and many of my friends over the past decade or so that you touch on so well in the book. Before we start talking about artists, I always thought that liberal feminism was enough until it wasn't. <laughs> Tell me yeah, about I think that. you've just hit uh, I think you've just hit on the core of the book, which which no one else has brought up that exact dynamic. Did you just say you thought liberal feminism was enough until it wasn't? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, tell me, well, I mean, not to turn it back on you, but tell me about your experience of that change. My parents took me to a Bill Clinton rally when I was a little kid. And I just always thought that things basically worked, mm-hmm. that, that the system was flawed, but overall it worked. And I realized what a position of privilege I am in that I ever once thought that. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that, you know, I first started thinking about this part. I'm 56. And I think my age is is part of the context of what we're talking about, because mm-hmm. I certainly grew up thinking of myself as liberal and simultaneously believing that to be a liberal was to be progressive. Those things were all kind of conflated or in kind of a soup together in my brain and didn't really critique my own position. And I started thinking about this book in about 2014 or 2015. And I first started writing the book in 2016. And I first published on it right in the wake of the Weinstein allegations in 2017 and the kind of uh, the hashtag me too kind of free for all that happened after that or avalanche or whatever you want to describe it. The sort of (laughs) outpouring maybe is a better word. And uh I am so glad that I have not published the book that I would have written in that moment. You know, I think that I think that there was a, a lot of I I had already done a lot of really valid thinking about my own about the role emotion plays in this problem. And I'd done some good thinking about the problem, but the following years demanded so much of me in terms of my own growth as a feminist or a person or an actual, you know, somebody who grew from being a liberal into being more of a leftist and hopefully understanding a lot more perspectives past the white female carceral feminist perspective that I am just every day flooded with gratitude that I was able to, that my publisher and I were able to take the time to really work on this book. 
and that I was allowed to, I mean, this is so hippie-ish, like I'm not going to use the word journey, but that I was allowed to grow the ways that the world asked me to grow over the last few years. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that you touch on that is so important to me in this book is that you're you're sort of writing this response to like, can the artist be separate from the art? All all of those those questions that we like have discussed endlessly already. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that you get at is how steeped in the idea of personal responsibility we all are. Yeah. Like not watching the films of Woody Allen is like not using a plastic straw. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that you just, spoiler alert. I mean, that's my, that's sort of after, you know, 200 sort of, I'm not going to say maundering, but really complex exploration and, and setting up arguments and knocking them down and questioning myself and looking at it from both a sort of what I hope is a fearsomely logical point of view, but also a very emotional point of view. You know, toward the end of the book, I I sort of pull myself up and say, I, I have to really say what I think ought to be done. And ultimately, what I come to is the idea that, you know, we exist in capitalist structure. And within that structure, we have a role as consumers, you know, and of course, the recycling argument is the kind of paradigmatic argument of, you know, like, I have to separate my recycling. But it's so I mean, we're finding out actually, just this week, we found out even more about how meaningless that is. But, uh, you know, what really needs to be done is a revising of governmental and corporate behavior. But the way that we behave under capitalism is to believe in our role as consumers. That is the role we are given in late capitalism. That is our responsibility is to be a consumer. And then we're told when we're faced with a moral dilemma that we are responsible for it. So like the, you know, a, a structure of, for instance, an entertainment ind- industry and perhaps patriarchy and a culture of sexual and state violence creates a dynamic where something horrible happens. And then the problem sort of gets shoved onto the individual and we're expected to solve it as a consumer. And in the book where I really come to in the end is making an ethical decision around your consumption only reinforces your role as a consumer and reestablishes your kind of participation in this this false spectacle in which we exist or in the atmosphere of capital as the writer Mark Fisher describes it. Sorry, I didn't know we were going to go in this direction and I can be very long-winded on it. But ultimately, so ultimately I talk about the idea that, you know, the way you consume a work of art And I would gently say maybe the way you consume anything isn't going to make you a bad or good person. You're going to have to find a different way to accomplish that. And I think the other half of that sentence is important. What is it you do with that knowledge? If you start to critique your own participant as a consumer, well, what next? What are you going to do? Which is actually kind of a more interesting question. I don't know. Is that an interesting question to you? Oh, it's it's endlessly interesting, but I fear that we're going to get totally off. <laughs> so so let me pull back a little bit because I, I I do realize yes that was a little spoiler alert. 
one of the other things I love about this book is that you really question what the role of criticism is and what your role in criticism is. And that's another topic I find endlessly exciting. <laughs> Perhaps most specifically that the subjective experience is valid. <laughs> I like that that made me laugh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I Go ahead. Oh, just, I think I grew up thinking the same things that you did in terms of all of the men who are authorities on various subjects who were able to keep emotional distance from, from their topics. Yeah. yeah, I think one thing that's been really fun about talking to interviewers about the book is that so many interviewers are also critics. And it's a field of writing where we don't often get to do a lot of shop talk. And so I do often find that I get asked about this, which is really, for me, really enjoyable. Um, so when I started out as a critic, I was in my 20s. I was a young woman. It was the 90s, which is incredible to contemplate. And I was writing almost in a, I don't want to say instinctive because that's a really complicated word, but I was writing a very subjective criticism almost from the start. I knew I was a film critic and I knew quite a lot about film just as somebody who'd seen a lot of film, you know, not in any professional or expert way, but just as someone who was had a lifelong interest in it. But my lack of authority really troubled me my status as one of the only women in the screening room troubled me and my ongoing inability to view the film as a critic was a problem for me. I kept kind of slipping up and being the audience. I kept laughing at the funny parts and hiding at the scary parts mm -hmm. and sort of responding. And eventually I came to write a criticism from that point of view. I think in some ways, as a young critic, I did that partially because those were critics whose work I loved. And also because it was a way for me to, to diffuse the voice in my head that said, oh, I'm not an authority. I'm just, you know, frankly, just a girl. So I kind of owned that subjectivity. And that was my way of sort of creating this sort of perverse almost authority was by just foregrounding the subjectivity. And as I grew older and started to really think about it, I realized that I was operating under a really false assumption, which is that someone else was the authority. And I think this problem of the externally <laughs> residing authority is kind of an ongoing one in these conversations. I think that there's a way in which, you know, if you are a woman or you're a person of color or you're a queer person or you're a person outside the traditional channels of white, I mean, I and I hate these sort of dunderheaded white male terms, but we are forced into this position. The white male mark maker who has the white male critic for a perceived white male audience, that's the kind of pipeline that gets perceived as an objective relationship. You have the maker who makes the great work or the not great work, and then these people perceiving it, and they're never troubled by their own historicity, by their own culturally determined qualities, by their own you know, racial perspective, their own class perspective. These things are invisible because they have not heretofore been made visible. And those of us who 
are outside of this, and you know, I do not mean to go up to anyone else's outsiderness, are forced to think of ourselves as subjective or non-central or, you know, looking at something from a specific historical perspective. And the fact is, we all are. It's just the so-called objective critics who haven't been put in a position of questioning that objectivity. 100%. And it and it's, it still feels radical to say that, yes, we our personal experiences affect how we view the world. And yet, let me stop myself there because I use the word we. And mm. I, I love how you talk about that word, the we versus the I in the book. You could uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and this relates to exactly what we were just talking about. Um, I bring in, I bring the we in for a kind of a spanking at the beginning of the book where I'm talking about, how, you know, I myself am using the word we. We do this, we do that. And I'm noticing, as a good memoirist notice notices, that I'm using that word and wondering what's going on there. Why am I using this word? And I'm realizing that we becomes this kind of mantle of authority. If I frame my position as this sort of societal collective position, suddenly it has greater meaning and authority for which I have done no work except for change the pronoun. And so one, and of course I slip up through the whole book, the whole book, I sort of do this Buster Keaton wobble between I and we, and as a nonfiction writer and thinker, you know, we is a fantastic shelter. And I find myself there often, but uh, we're kind of redounding, returning to the I am saying, I don't know what to do about these artists. I don't know how to feel. I am responding in this way. It's not meant, I mean, I, I know that, you know, this perspective has been called self-involved on Twitter by a man. Um, <laughs> and it's not meant to, to place the self on a pedestal or to valorize this particular self more than any other. The idea is by, you know, inhabiting my own subjectivity, I'm automatically acknowledging its limits. And I'm also acknowledging the subjectivity of the reader. Like there's a tacit agreement going on there where I'm hoping to have you think about it in the same way. 100%. In terms of other definitions, Let's let's talk about a, a couple of words that you you define in the book. And I mean, starting with the title of the book, what is a monster? Yeah, that's I, I that's a great question. So the the word monster for me, you know, I think that it it came up early. I think it was a word that was sort of in the sorry discourse around the time of of fall of 2017. And of course, we all had already been thinking about the word, the phrase art monsters, or not we all, but many of us had been yes. from reading Jenny Ophel's book. And I hope I'm saying her name right. I always have a moment of, oh, Jenny Ophel's book, Department of Speculation, in which she talks about the idea of the art monster as the person who just gets to think about art all day long and doesn't have to remember the umbrella or lick the stamps or do any of the other work of life. So that book really introduced the word monster in a specific way. But it also was part of the kind of culture of allegation and accusation that was rising in 2017. 
you know, necessarily, of course, but there was a way in which the, that word was often used. And so I started using it kind of in that context. And it wasn't very long before I realized that it was a hugely, it was a problem. The word monsters was a problem because first of all, it others the monster. Second of all, it sort of puts a lot of emphasis on them rather than on the viewer. And most of all, it, it does not encapsulate enough what my definition is. And my feeling about the word monster is by it, I simply mean a person whose biography, something they've done, disrupts our experience of the work. Right. So that's that's what I was really talking about. And I I, I began to look around for another metaphor that might do the trick to kind of talk about that idea. So. And that's where you bring in the idea of the stain. And I really love that metaphor, especially when you talk about uh, retroactive stains, like mm. knowing what we know now about Michael Jackson. If a Jackson 5 slam comes on in the pharmacy <laughs> and you tap your feet, what does that mean? <laughs> right, right, right. And and these weird, so I, I come to this idea of the stain, that this person's behavior has stained the work. And the thing that's so incredible about the image of the stain, which other people have thought of before me, it's not like I just came up with it, but the what's incredible about it is the way that it brings in the idea of indelibility there's an idea, there's kind of sort of a way in which we talk about monsters or the problem of the separation of the art from the artist, which is such a tiresome way to talk about it. It suggests a voluntary quality on the part of the audience member that we're choosing to see it this way. And what I love about the stain is that, you know, indelibility is not voluntary. Like the glass of wine falls on the carpet. You don't get to decide that you now have this problem of this blotch. And so it is, you know, with knowing what we know or hearing what we have heard, you know, in some cases, and in this case about Michael Jackson, we can't unknow that. And yet, you know, you hear, I want you back, or you hear, you know, rock and Robin, my brother's favorite song from when he was five. And, and you still love it. And there's it makes us do these weird sort of mental gymnastics where we, you know, well, oh, that was before that was when maybe Michael Jackson was a victim and that was before he did the wrong thing. And for me, I find that it's like much easier for me to consume the work of Polanski from before he did his crime. And, you know, and that doesn't really make that much sense. But at any rate, it is a response that we have. I mean, do you have that response? I do. And I think Woody Allen is such a good person to talk to in this instance because you make the distinction between Annie Hall and Manhattan, which which is very helpful to me. That Annie Hall is a really lovely portrait of, oh, what did you say in the book? Uh, pe uh, people who, I'm going to, I'm going to get it wrong. Oh, I, uh, I don't know. I can't remember. Okay. I wrote okay. so much about it. I mean, there were thousands of words about Annie Hall that were cut from this book because I have so much to say about it. So, but I, Annie Hall. Delightful film. A delightful film. That doesn't, 
in in our eyes today feel as quote unquote problematic as Manhattan was at, at, solely because the director writer star of the movie <laughs> happens to be saying that it's totally fine and normal for an adult man to sleep with a teenager. Right. And I mean, there's kind of a couple things going on here in terms of apprehending the work. Like to start with, you know, Annie Hall is a great film. I mean, that's one of those authoritative pronouncements that I sort of push against making, but in my opinion is a great film. And part of the reason it's great is the way that Alan, so unusually for him, but almost always successfully sort of outsources his own complex neurotic subjectivity to Annie. So he takes what is most human in him and allows the the woman to inhabit it and express it. And so Annie is this, like, she's just an incredible character. And she's allowed to be in char- a, a person, a full person. And as all great artists do, he makes this character, you know, express a part of himself, or as some great artists do. So I feel like I'm constantly mitigating myself. (laughs) But that's my impulse. So, and in Manhattan, we have this really complex situation where Alan is, you know, his character is, you know, this neurotic, self-doubting, complicated person And then we get Diane Keaton as an adult woman he meets who is sort of kind of mocked in the film for her intellectualism and for her, you know, just for being a brain. And uh, that's kind of one of the jokes of the film is like, she's too smart. What? And then at the same time, that, of course, has contrasted with Alan's character's high school girlfriend played by Marielle Hemingway named Tracy. And in the opening of the film, we see a dinner with Woody Allen's character and two of his 40-ish friends and his date. It's a double date. And his date is this teenager. And you're just expected on the face of it to accept this. And they, you know, make a little conversation about it. And he has qualms. Like he makes a funny joke. Like I'm dating a girl wherein, you know, her father could, I don't know, beat me up or something. And, you know, there's kind of some witticisms, but it's strictly in the name of diffusing the situation. And ultimately, it's, there's sort of two things going on. On the one hand, the the three things, I mean, there's Alan, you know, just making kind of a bad film, you know, and it's been called his masterpiece, but it hinges on this depiction you know, that is completely unexplored in any meaningful way between a man and a girl. There's no way that's problematized or made into an important part of the story. So there's like this failure there from an artistic point of view, in my opinion. Then there's the sort of retroactive failure of, is he grooming the audience or even himself to think that this is okay behavior vis-a-vis his relationship with Sunyi? And as always, I'm not touching the Dylan question. This is all for me really through the lens of the Sunyi story. And third of all, so there's there's sort of two things happening there, but then there's also me and you and our experiences we're bringing to the watching of the film of maybe having to some degree or another having been the Marielle Hemingway character or, and this is something I've been thinking about since the completion of the writing of the book, 
the Diane Keaton character being treated like you're too smart. So there's sort of three ways in which it's just not working. But when you try to bring these things up, it's sort of like, no, it's a masterpiece. Well, why is it a masterpiece? Because it's in black and white? I mean, is that right? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's very funny, but but so so are many of others of this film and so many other films overall. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that was more of an exegesis than you wanted of Manhattan, but I I that, that's I love that. And that and that brings me to another another word that you define so well in this book, which is since I first saw those movies, fandom has changed dramatically. Mm. And that kind of that really impacts how we feel about art because it becomes even more about our identities. Yeah, I think that an important way that that our relationship to work has changed is this ubiquity of biography. So we're sort of living in this moment where we can't not know everything about everyone. That's what the whole engine of our culture runs on is biography. And within the context of that, there's a way in which the fan is also ascendant, the person who consumes the work. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. But also there's a way in which the fan is collapsed with the biography of the maker. You know, we know all this information about who they are and we have the sense of immediacy and immediate connection with who they are. And, and so we have this collapsed relationship that we've come to call a parasocial relationship with the artist and and it's something that we don't do by ourselves it's a it's one of it's kind of returning to the idea of the we it's a collective thing and we're joined together in this fandom but there's this emotional immediacy around it that doesn't just have to do with the emotionalism of the relationship to the work it has to do with this sense of you know um, identity collapse with the maker. And therefore, when the maker, you know, does something rotten or does something great, we have ways we feel based on that. Uh, and that's sort of, a, it's, it's a kind of fandom that has been, you know, when you study the idea of parasocial relationships, that collapse has started since the very beginning of broadcast but it's obviously, you know, so ascendant and dominant now. And in fact, is sort of the the stuff that the Internet makes money on um, and is so ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, and speaking on behalf of the fans, you write that this book is about broken hearts and that that emotional reaction to someone you don't know <laughs> <laughs> feels exactly right. Like, and the the examples you use there with both David Bowie and J.K. Rowling, like heroes of people who felt like outsiders, and how much how much thornier than that is it when you learn that they are not quite as heroic as as you might want them to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it is really, I think for, and I think that that's 
often true that fandoms can be more intense in populations that are more vulnerable, right? Like people who are seeking a sense of maybe don't have a sense of belonging as much in their family or their school when they're young or, you know, and so they're maybe seeking a more intense kind of a connection with this relationship with this art with these artists and then thereby with communities now that build around these artists that sort of speak to an outsider status and and lift up an outsider status so that when those people you know our guys are accused of something that can feel existentially threatening for those groups in a way that is painful and is heartbreaking. And I, I thought a lot about, about teenagers while I was writing this book. I am the mother of two people who are now in their 20s, but were in their, at least one of them was in their teens. When Yeah, they were in their teens when I started writing the book. And I thought a lot about my own experiences as a weird kid. And uh, there's something so pure about the way that teenagers engage with art. And it's so important. And you know, I don't want to be histrionic or overstate it, but there's many ways in which art can be life-saving for kids who have that outsider status. So in a sense, like the teenager really brings the conflict to the fore in, in a very heightened way because they both are, they're feeling this intense love and they're getting something from art that is so important. And they're also feeling the betrayal. Right. And they're also learning or I, that I, I feel like that's when I first started learning that you can't quite help who you love. You can't turn <laughs> you can't turn that dial and all of a sudden be like, well, I'm over that person. <laughs> God, if only. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, how how much would teenagerhood be changed if you could do that? And that brings me to. I, I need to read this essay because you talk about it so lovingly. And it seems like such a lovely place to end on by a woman who loved, loved, loved Miles Davis, who then must reckon with all of his terrible behavior and, and how she goes about that. Yeah. So there's this essay that I think especially people who have a background in, in music will might already know. It's titled Mad at Miles by Pearl Clegg. I've been told that's how to say her name. And uh, I'm glad I didn't attempt it. <laughs> yeah, I had it wrong for a while. And it was eventually collected in a book called A Black Woman's Guide to Truth, which I think is an important subtitle. She's writing about uh, falling in love. She hears kind of blue. And she falls in love with it and it becomes really intertwined with her life, the way music does, you know, the way that maybe more than any other art, she she talks about how, you know, Miles plays along during the different phases of her life, the part where she's ending, I think, a marriage or a long relationship, the part where she's starting to date again, the part where she's going bananas because dating so hard. And we all know that feeling where a piece of music becomes interwoven with our lived experience. And it it is love and it's more than love. It's just like this deep emotional identity and connection. And she's already fallen in love with Miles and his work when she starts to find out, you know, that he has a history as an abuser, which is not an accusation. He writes about it in his own 
very brilliantly written autobiography, I might add. And as a Black woman, as a survivor, as a woman who doesn't want to point a finger at Black men or be mad at Black men, she is in this very uncomfortable position. And there's a way in which Clegg could then start to make pronouncements. She could say, this is right and this is wrong. I'm going to separate the art or I'm going to cancel Miles Davis or... Instead, she writes an essay with an emotion in the very first word of the title. She writes an essay called Mad at Miles. And because she's a great writer, she gets in there and she just rummages around in her own experience of the work and her love of the work. And even as she's at her most furious at Miles, the love is flooding her description of what's going on. She can't escape the love. And that's why she's so mad. And so to me, that was the writing that I had been looking for from the first when I started thinking about this problem was somebody who had the courage and the intellectual bravery to foreground her own emotion and thereby give you, the reader, to do the same. I love that. Thank you so much, Claire. Before we go, please recommend some books for us. I would love to. I will first recommend, I, I love that this person is becoming more, is sort of rising in the internet all the time, but I'm a lifelong devotee of Lori Colwyn. She is my foundational writer. I think she is the most perfect modern maker of sentences and the fact that I can have an opportunity to point people toward her work is just an incredible feeling. So I would say, you know, most people who know her work know Home Cooking and More Home Cooking, which are her books about just that. And they're just incredibly brilliant essays that were collected from Gourmet Magazine. But her novels are the thing and short stories. And I would say the ur text of her novels is happy all the time. But they're all fantastic. And the short stories are just so delicious. So Lori Colwyn would be one recommendation. We'll go with Happy All the Time, though you can't go wrong. And the other book that I'd love to recommend is a book by Alison Bechtel. And Alison Bechtel is really known kind of by her name now as the progenitor of the Bechtel test and fine, whatever. And then after that, she's known as the author of Fun Home and this really phenomenal trilogy of graphic memoirs. But what I'm interested in is a book called The Essential Dykes to Watch Out For, which is a compendium of her cartoons about, or comics, her daily, her weekly strip, excuse me, that ran from, I think, 1983 to 2008, I'm going to say, and creates this just incredible real time. It's about a group of queer friends living in a small college city. You know, it's probably Madison or something like that. And um, how their love lives and their friendship lives all intertwine, but they weave in and out of all the big political moments of that era. And it becomes this incredible shadow history of the American left and of queer culture in a way that is so joyous for any nonfiction writer to read and just fun for anyone. It's a really, really wonderful kind of could be lost American history, but isn't lost because of her. I love that. Claire, thank you so much. Monsters is out now and I want to have a conversation with everyone about it. So please read it. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It's just been great. Thank you for listening.
listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.